Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. The, the team we, <clears throat> the auction team we brought on for Wally's uh, was incredible, and a lot of industry veterans that I'd worked with at Zaki's, some from elsewhere, and so, uh, to this day, uh, even though now that's in the rearview mirror, uh, several of these people are some of my closest best friends, and we we <clears throat> we relished in that time together. It was exciting, and it was very special. And it could have, it, as I mentioned, it could have been something great. To this day, yeah, we could be talking. I could be talking to you as head of Wally's Wine Auctions, the world conquering, highest volume, greatest ever, most respected wine auction house. It really, it could, it was possible, mm-hmm. and I believed in that dream. Um. But uh, I, I recognized, <clears throat> unfortunately, uh, for my own sake um, and the reality of what was happening with the Wally's organization and the directions they wanted to go in, uh, it, was, it was time to get out of the auction biz for me. Um, I... It, it, it's it's an extraordinarily grueling world. It has enormous. Uh, it's enormously wonderfully high profile, exciting, energetic, best wines you can imagine. Globe trotting, so much time in Asia and Europe, all over. Um, I, but also, you know what, what was happening um, professionally with Wally's and that decision. And then personally, I, I kind of came to the realization, it just felt, my, my whole being was telling me to just get out. And it um, wasn't so much I had a plan <clears throat> as a, a next step, a next jump. I knew what I decided before I resigned from Wally's was, at least for now, I'm not going back in the wine business, wine auction business, sorry, not going back to auctions. I don't want to be affiliated with any of the auction houses. I wasn't just going to do what a lot of people do to cash in on their experiences, uh, leave a prominent role at an auction house and become, you know, an advisor or a consultant with another Mm -hmm. one. And I had that opportunity. I had every auction house after I left Wally's virtually every auction house approached me at least to have a conversation yeah because it ultimately it's client driven and the asset you create when you're in the auction business is your good reputation your good Mm -hmm. name your client list your connections and um but i very politely uh and i was very upfront Mm -hmm. with everybody i spoke with and the other auction houses I told him exactly where I stood, which is I have no desire at the moment to uh, get back with an auction company to be associated with another auction company. Uh, for now, I need a break, right. you know. And um, that's why there, there it is. It was a clean, hard break. I could have <clears throat> made some really easy money 
just signing on as advisor or consultant or something with you name it auction house and it would have been easy money and to this day I'd probably still be making that easy money but I I I needed I needed I just could t feel it in my heart my soul my head that I needed to make that cut even if it meant you know financial downside or limiting some of my opportunities for my own mental health I just, I really, I, I was, I, I could tell it cycled out, you know, I had enough, I got out of it what I think I could have got out and what, what, where I was at that point with Wally's and what had happened with Wally's, I would, I don't know, it's hard to describe. I was just feeling, I was feeling uh, just a lot of negative energy that sort of needed to be exercised. And I, 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 just thought the only way I could do it was a clean break. Uh, I didn't have a plan. I didn't know exactly where I was going, but I wasn't worried about it. I knew the, the wine world is amazing. And, and once you're, you know, <clears throat> put in a little time in the wine business, you realize there's so many possibilities. There's import, distrib distribution, marketing, retail, uh, winery management, wine making. I mean, the wine business is so freaking cool because there's so much to it so in a strange way even i didn't have like concrete concepts of where i may have been heading but it was one of those really rare periods of time in life that i just felt so good and comfortable saying okay i can step away and i know i'll be okay i just felt it you know and i i think maybe you know maybe had enough standing uh i could survive a little bit still had family still had kids to take care of and all this stuff but I, I just I just it was really it was really more chasing what your heart's telling you more than what your head is telling you so it, there it is that's how I left Wally's in the auction biz and then uh, what quickly came about was the opportunity with Pearl of Burgundy and working with uh, the portfolio of Bur Burgundy wines uh, which the Pearl of Burgundy company, we market, most of the business is in Hong Kong and Asia. Uh, and after I left auctions, <clears throat> I was approached to sort of be a point person here in the United States. And the history of that is I, the Pearl of Burgundy uh, partners are all dear friends of mine, people I've known a long time, well before they even had, well before they were even in the wine business and well before Pearl of Burgundy. And they, they're, uh, they, they are extremely uh, smart, ambitious, uh, successful business guys from all sort of different kind of walks of business. One was uh, living in Paris. My partners in Pearl of Burgundy are... Uh, they're really this wonderful group of Israeli guys that uh, they have kind of conquered other areas of the world, whether it's real estate, financial markets, what have you. They just always love wine. I got to know them first as <clears throat> sort of clients in the wine world. And while I was, it was while I was at Zaki's, they, they started dabbling in and with their own wine businesses as outsiders and um uh Perla Burgundy was born around the time that the uh 
wine markets in Hong Kong opened up. And that was 2008 uh, when the Hong Kong government eliminated all import taxes. And so it made it so easy for getting wine into Hong Kong. No duties will make, you know, importation easy. will make it easy when, you know, the container arrives. You're not going to have to hassle with things. We'll work to help develop the right storage, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Perla Burgundy, uh, the, the, the guys were just these wine lovers. They saw opportunities also in the right place at the right time. They had developed relationships with a few Burgundians, including my good friend Jean-Marie Fourier, who became kind of the one of the flagship uh, producers for the portfolio. <clears throat> and suddenly, you know, Hong Kong opens up and jump on this opportunity to, to be uh, Burgundy, Head, you know, a Burgundy imported to Hong Kong, and it just exploded beyond anybody's mm. wildest dreams. And this is while I'm still at mm-hmm. auction, but I'm watching, I'm still close with them. They're good friends, visit with them and help, you know, we do work together. <clears throat> yeah, so suddenly I leave auctions, I leave Wally's, and um, we have the conversation. Well, hey, you know, uh, let's, we want to continue. You, you obviously have good connections in Hong Kong and mm-hmm. Asia, and be good at what we'd like to bring you on. and. Let's see what kind of business we can get going in America. Mm-hmm. And America is a different thing than Hong Kong because it's not so open. You know, three-tier system. Uh, you can't, you know, in Hong Kong you can do anything. You can, you could be John Marie Fourier sitting there and somebody from Hong Kong can call you up and order wine and you can get it directly. You don't have to worry about mm-hmm. three tiers. You don't have to worry about, well, it has to go through importer, distributor, and then a retail, and then da-da-da. <clears throat> uh, you know, so the only, you know, the real challenge with, a concept like Perla Burgundy uh, can't quite do what we do, obviously, in Hong Kong and other parts where it's open market. But there are ways here we can still partner with the people where we can get the distribution to get the wines to the clients that want to get them to, whether it's restaurants, retailers, private clients. It's just it's just more of a slog, but I love it. This, is, this got me to one of my goals. Uh, which was being able to re- really work close to the source. So right. it is what I what I'm what do with Perla Burgundy and with the Burgundy portfolio we have. I'm literally working, you know, one on one with these producers to help provide these wines to the marketplace. And there's almost also a feel good factor there because these people obviously don't have enough bandwidth to do marketing in s- such. You know, it's a different situation. A lot of small wineries struggle when it comes to promoting themselves and such like that and doing a cohesive effort. And here you step in and you present them, you know, in a way that makes them more marketable and create that branding for them, correct? Well, you're, you're, you're totally right. I mean, on, <clears throat> on, I mean, on paper, it almost begs the question, you know, some, why does... Domaine de la Romanicanti even need distribution mm-hmm. partners, importation here and there, blah, blah, blah. Well, it is bandwidth. You know, Albert de Valon can only do so much. Right. You know, it, it, you, can't just, you, you can't just have an operation where you're making the greatest wines of the world and, okay, just sell it if people call up around the way. You, you know, you really do need to, it's a balance of maintaining that mystique and relevance that has been 
built over the years, in the case of, let's say, Domaine de la Romani Conti, you know, they still have to do marketing efforts and be out there for the sake right. of keeping that branding going. I mean, this is, in, in a way, that's Burgundy is, is, is becoming more like, you know, luxury product, mm -hmm. not just wine product. And as much as it, it looks like on the surface, well, why, why do they even spend a penny on marketing efforts, selling efforts. Why? I mean, it, of course, everybody wants to buy all this wine right away. They don't even have to sell it. Uh, but they're smart. You know, and also, you know, this wine world we're living in now of the last couple of decades, it's, it's fresh in the memories, especially in Burgundy, where it wasn't that long ago, just selling a vintage was a struggle. Even if you had good importers, good distribution. Right. And by the way, for the prices, even if they were pretty decent prices per bottle, you know, these aren't rich people. The Burgundians aren't, weren't, weren't, let's say in those days, this is, um, they, have, they have a lot of memories about what a struggle it was for making the wine, getting through the vintage, hoping for the best. Right. And you know what, if you have a, a string of a few bad vintages, that's creating financial disaster for the family and so we're, we're looking at things in a, a view of how we see the wine world today and it, it's changed rapidly and it, this is very unique and different and uh it will it, it, it's continuing to change but they're smart and it is smart even if you're on top of the game like Domaine de la Romani Conti or the you know Lafons, Ramones, the uh, uh, Russo's I know, you know, when you actually visit these places, do tastings, you know, get to know the people making the wine run, they, they have, it's still fresh in the memory, the struggles of their mothers and fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers, those days, you know, several decades ago where it was lean, even if they were making mm -hmm. great wines, it was, it was vintage to vintage, you know. It's almost counterintuitive because the public perception by the public i mean it's a very specific segment of the populace even within the wine sphere that feels very strongly about the romance of burgundy they basically think that that region walks on water for lack of a better term and um there's almost like a default assumption that of course any good burgundy will sell and that's just not true and i think what's going to compound it in the coming years is that uh, the younger generation um, or generations, it, I'm not going to limit it to millennials, but people right. that are not as invested in the wine, they're going to need to really be educated as yeah. to what it actually is in order for them to become that consumer. Uh, no matter what field of profession or work you're in, no matter what, the wise thing to do is never rest on your laurels. Mm -hmm. Because there's, I mean, there's so many countless examples. It, I, I, I forget about wine, but anything where, at, at one moment, it just it, it looks like no-brainer, but things can quickly change. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it, you can even look, <clears throat> step back and look, it, yeah, look at the demographics of uh, wine enjoying populations, millennials, and what's going to come after. And actually, I, I mean, I'm saying this more from what I'm seeing uh, in my own experience. I don't have like empirical evidence to back this up, but I, I saw a blip with what was happening in the Bordeaux trade. It could ha easily happen to Burgundy that, guess what? 
you know, these wines are now so far out of reach that mm -hmm. they're, they're, they may lose um, a connection with the marketplace and with the generations of, that are growing up enjoying wines. But guess what? They've gone on and discovered other things. And mm -hmm. maybe there is this cool idea of Burgundy and Bordeaux, but you know what? I don't know. And uh, another 10 years or something, the Burgundy and Bordeaux may have its place, but it may be like, let's say the Beethoven and Bach compared to like the Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd or something. Like, oh, that's really nice. And I can appreciate, mm -hmm. you know, a, a Beethoven sonata or something, but guess what? I'm really into, you know, Led Zeppelin three and the rock and roll of this. I, I don't know. I'm just putting out something like, I don't yeah. know. And what does that mean for the marketplace? The I, Of course, there's always going to be a market where these wines will sell, but there's a lot of nervousness. The practical vignerons in Burgundy, um, they're, because of the lessons they have learned through generate, you know, a few generations of doing mm -hmm. this, they're trying to interpret and comprehend the idea of these wines being so expensive now, so yeah. sought after. Most of them, not all of them, many of them are, aren't taking that for granted mm -hmm. and just doing what they do, keep doing what they do and just focusing on making great wine. And a lot of them, if there's a little extra cash coming into the domain, they're doing the right thing and investing it in better winery equipment, better vineyard management, you know, they're putting mm -hmm. it in the right place, not, not building vacation house somewhere, not buying a Ferrari or something. Some of them are, you know, okay. Some are doing that and they can afford to, and that's cool. But I, I haven't seen one that I haven't seen any of them, any, any, I'm sure there are, I don't know. Maybe I just don't know them, but, there's a ton of money now coming into Burgundy, but yeah. they're practical, very practical. It's a very practical wine mm -hmm. culture there. So the pain points, again, are not dissimilar to other regions that are inherently limited by geography and therefore production. If you were to maintain the purity of the actual, you know, AVAs or specific vineyards that are attached to, um, because they can't scale. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, my question to you is, over the years, you must have observed very acutely. What is it that promotes that interest in that region? Oh, wow. <laughs> I know it's a loaded question. No, it's a good question, though. <laughs> well, that's what I... <clears throat> you know, it's funny. I can, I can relate to this question really, really well. This, you know, the idea of <clears throat> Burgundy is what we consider now the pinnacle. And I, 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 that said, I, I know extremely wine passionate, wine versed, wine experienced people. They just don't happen to like these wines that well. And it's it's not that oh they, they're not intellectually capable or mm -hmm. financially capable yeah. or whatever. It's just there is still taste, you know. And maybe they're drinking northern Italian wines or German wines or California, whatever. You know, that yeah. taste is taste. So yeah, of course Burgundy doesn't mean <clears throat> that that is the ultimate landing site for everybody's wine journey of course not yeah but it's the mystique it, you know there's so much around the story and history of burgundy that's so compelling you know it, it appeals i mean not just the when you have a great bottle of burgundy red or white 
oh boy, you know, it's hard to even describe what that experience is like. And it is so much different in wine terms than just about anything else you can find. That said, of course, yeah, Bordeaux, uh, great Barolo, Barbaresco, great German Riesling. Yeah, of course. I'm not mm -hmm. at all saying it. You can't have those experiences elsewhere, but <clears throat> it is the mystique. It is it is that aspiration of best and best, and it requires to re to truly appreciate it. Uh, it's also that there's an intellectual journey that's amazing, you know, and it is Burgundy is this crazy rubric. You know, going back to we were talking a little bit about Napoleonic code and what made Burgundy Burgundy, mm -hmm. and the fact that you know over so many generations. You know, these amazing vineyard sites were divided among various families and such and continue to be uh, based on generational transfers and what have you. And then it, it, it almost it becomes like this cool, compelling pursuit of the passion. Uh, sorry for what what is that alliteration where you <laughs> the same first, yes, whatever I did. Indeed. That was an accident. But. But like Montrachet, what is it, 17 owners or something, like I said, or whatever. Any great vineyard has a, a Clos Saint-Jacques, five. Oh, the Clos Saint-Jacques vineyard is a great study in this. And Jean-Marie Fourier has one of the slices. It has, uh, the Clos Saint-Jacques is, uh, of course, Premier Crew and Gevry. But um, one of the things that's unique about it, 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 it has, um, it has like, one of like the longest aspects, I guess, or something like this along the hill, because it has a very unique uh, profile where there's a flatter level that then goes up on the hill. And it's it's kind of, it's like this, the, the vineyard itself, if you're looking in two dimensions, is, it's very much, it's just like a shoebox kind of, okay? Mm -hmm. But it's so cool because it has a little bit of flatness that goes into this elongated aspect that gets a lot of sun and all this. It's a really cool vineyard. It should be Grand Cru, but there are five owners of it. And if you stand at the base of Clos Saint-Jacques, mm -hmm. when let's say later in the growing season, let's say in August, <coughs> you can literally see five different lines mm -hmm. for how each vigneron is treating their portion of the vineyard and it is so freaking cool this is like it's like a master class in itself of mm -hmm. vineyard management sort of and each vigneron is making their own choice and their own decision about how they're growing their grapes and you're mm -hmm. literally talking about vines that are within such i don't know the width of the width of close saint jock is probably i i half a football field or something maybe i don't know maybe 200 feet i don't know i could look this stuff up but it's it's, it's not big mm -hmm. but it's so ridiculously cool i have photos somewhere i think you know just standing there you can see like rousseau is on the far left then it's fourier and then it's uh uh the farthest right is jadot and i think it's bruno claire next to jadot and Sorry, on the spot, I'm trying to think. But it's okay, it, no, that's but amazing my point is, you have it, it such is a so, catalog it memory is so of it. weird. <laughs> but this is Burgundy, and, you know, it's truly, it's, it is vineyard-driven, it's terroir, site-specific, but you have this amazing 
interjection of who the landowner is, who the holder is, and who's growing mm -hmm. the grapes, and what decisions are they making. And that all happens before, then when the grapes are in the winery, wherever that is, then what are they doing? I mean, it's so intellectually amazing and challenging and, and stimulating. I, I get it. So Burgundy, the draw is like, it's one of those pursuits that people undertake because it really gets their neurons firing, yeah. you know? There's a reason why Burgundy. Yeah. And by the way, so once you make your first trip to Burgundy or get to know it, you see it, it's that only by a hundred times enhances your experience of these wines. When you mm -hmm. see where that wine is made, when you've met the person who's making it, when you've been there, um, it's another draw for a lot of wine regions, but especially Burgundy. Mm -hmm. And I, unfortunately, I think, you know, a lot of money is coming in and now <clears throat> you're seeing properties and uh, families, it's slow and it's, there's certain controls the French government have in place, but there will be selling out eventually. And there are a lot of vignerons and uh, landowning families there. They want to get out and they almost have no choice because of the tax situation and because of the economics of it. Mm -hmm. There's there, the, the, there are buyers willing to pay so much more for this land than the actual output could ever even come close to justifying. So it's like it's it's just this. How could you not? How could you not sell? Uh, what, what was it? Loire, so, uh, one of the big luxury French houses, LVMH or somebody like that financed a tiny, tiny bit of Montrachet for Loire to make, but it was like literally, I don't know, 0.1 or 2 hectare, something wow. so small that, I mean, at most, what she could probably get out of it, half a barrel or something a year, but mm -hmm. the price that was paid was something like, I don't know, I'm, I'm just speaking off the cuff. It could be, we could find this, two, two something million euro or, or maybe mm -hmm. more, 10 million euro. I don't know, something that literally made no sense. That even right. if, if you're doing like the financial analysis yeah. of what possible, like what you would expect average production is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a foreseeable future, and it really how many bottles you could get, if you calculated the price you needed to get per bottle, to justify that cost, it was like ten thousand dollars or something crazy. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you're, you're talking about buying buyers that have a different agenda, if yeah, you will, a different reason, and it's more maybe it's trophy hunting, maybe it's mm -hmm. more to say another jewel in the crown. Of course, and it, it, they can justify it because they have other things going on. They're yeah. building an empire. They have an empire of luxury goods, luxury wines, and mm -hmm. to have a little bit of Montrachet you know, for their finances, it's really n not making a dent. But what happens, the practicality for these families of Burgundy, I, I, I was telling you earlier, I've talked to some without naming names, and they have a price in mind. And actually, they're just waiting for that offer to come from China or wherever. They can't wait to get the hell out, you know? Yeah. Because they're burdened by taxes. They're burdened by, if they hold inventory, they're, they have to pay taxes. If they hold bottles back, they have to, they're facing estate taxes if they die and have to transfer it to their kids. You yeah. Know? There's so many impediments. It's going to kill Burgundy. The, the, the bigger challenge Burgundy faces, the challenges Burgundy faces is uh, the fact that it is going to be harder for 
younger generations to get that exposure to these wines because mm-hmm. they're out of reach, they're too expensive. But then it's it's it will slowly, inevitably, slowly go to more what is a Bordeaux model, bigger houses owned by bigger conglomerates mm-hmm. and less artisanal and less handcrafted. Consolidation is next. Yeah, you think? Mm-hmm. it's okay. a, it, and it's happening. You know, Claude Lambre sold out. Uh, there's been other even lesser. Um, larger domains that you know, Chinese money comes in or or large luxury conglomerate money comes in. LVMH is buying up a lot of stuff. You know, they bought, they, they created Domain Du Genier, which was the uh, Rene Angel properties. Uh, <clears throat> so Burgundy, it's going to change. You also have climate change. So whatever. Burgundy, what I would say is Enjoy it now. We'll see what happens and hope for the best. Yeah, I think that in general, Burgundy is something that will forever be the hallmark for the purists. It's such a special place, like you so eloquently described, Um, and that will never change. But I think the practical matters that we've discussed really have to be kept in mind. And kudos to you for really um, investing your time and energy and supporting those producers that put their heart and soul in the bottle and giving them a voice. Well, it's easy. I, I, you know, it's like in a, in a way, <clears throat> especially now that I, in a world, in, in, this, in this new world I operate in, uh, it's great. I, I feel I can act more as an advocate, if you will, representative, as just like a fanboy who yeah. can share these wines like you know open some bottles like we are now and 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 uh spread the gospel in a way or at least give people the opportunity to try it because maybe they otherwise wouldn't it's an amazing place and it's it it <clears throat> i just uh, you know i'm my my longevity in the business actually it's not relatively speaking that long but boy when i was first starting even then as much as it seemed like these wines were expensive the prices and the accessibility for some of these great Burgundy took it for granted in a way, or you just realize you didn't realize what was coming. So yeah. now it's it's totally out of reach. Yeah, you know, even village level from good producers, even if you wanted it, it's not like you go to your local wine shop. It's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it's not there. You know, there is a little bit of Burgundy, but it's uh, it's it's off the shelves. This is all you have to be insider. You have to know how to get it. You ha- and now with the tariffs, we haven't yes, even started talking there, about that. One other. That's that's a, that's a nail in a coffin. But that's a whole other subject, and that's something yeah. ripple effect from that. We'll really know about a year from now. Yes, there will still be Burgundy. Yeah. It's going to be approximately twenty five percent more expensive, a little less because actually a lot of Burgundians that I've spoken with and that I know they've been willing to eat some of that margin, if you will, because they were already enjoying price escalation. Yeah. Uh, they can't take it's it, but it's not like they're not roping cash in. And, uh, as it may seem like, you know, they're still family oriented. They're industrious. They have other projects that mm-hmm. the fact that their wines are selling for more means they can try other things going to mm-hmm. other places, whatever. Uh, but 
it, it's a little unknown exactly how this tariff situation is going to affect, but obviously it's not going to be good for the American consumer and it's not good for, for Burgundy. You know, it, it's, it's a much more tenuous situation than we realize. It looks great. It's like, of course, Latosh is always going to sell, but you guess what? Don't take anything for granted. We don't know. Absolutely. And again, um, you're kind of a de facto goodwill ambassador as far as really, you know, generating and maintaining the interest in the region. And I think the lesson the takeaway here is that it is such a special place and you can find your own iteration of what should wind up in your cellar and on your table. Sure. Just look into it. It's yeah. amazing mm -hmm. where it can take you. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.